Welcome to Rumor Flies, everybody. I'm Ryan. I'm Josh. Last I checked, I'm still Greg. Still Greg. And really, I should be saying, welcome to Everything But Murder, brought to you by Rumor Flies. So. We're sponsors. (laughs) Up ahead. At the top of this, if you didn't notice, the reason why this is in the feed is because we've decided if we actually want to keep doing everything but murder, we should probably lace it into the seasons once or twice every now and then. And just letting you know, this is going to be a general format just to give you something different. Uh, The Everything But Murder feed is still up and will still be up and updated every time we release an episode of this. In case you, for some reason, hate every other episode of the show except for when we do the true crime stuff. I don't think that's the situation, but anyway, just a heads up and uh, let's go ahead and enjoy the show. Now, guys, first off, how can everybody reach us? (laughs) You can, as always, find us. Oh, wait, real quick. Can we throw out there all of us at the Rumor Flies headquarters studio production um, suite, uh, our our state-of-the-art facility? At first, I was kind of thinking that I was just talking to bots on like um, any messaging apps that we use. Like I was, I didn't know they existed anymore at some point, but they're here in the flesh. You were like 78% correct. <laughs> you know, with all of that influx of Patreon money since COVID started, <laughs> oh, yeah. we, we were able to purchase. We made Josh and Greg bought 3000 It can text. <laughs> oh, shit. But uh, you can find us, you know, Rumor Flies, uh, pretty much every podcast app there is, I think. If not, let me know and I will remedy that. Uh, you can do rumorfliespodcast.com. Check out the Educated Mess Network. And uh, what else? At Rumorflies on Twitter, at Rumorflies on everything. So hit us up. Tell us your hopes, dreams, and desires. Pitch us some episode ideas. We will not credit you. And (laughs) (laughs) damn it, I was hoping to have a good follow-up by the time I finished that one, but I don't. So on with the show. All right. So this episode is going to be about probably my favorite. I just favorite. really wanted to say again, this episode is brought to you by Rumor Flies. It's so great. Just, just, Josh, once you throw out the idea of us as the official, the official <laughs> sponsor <laughs> of everything but murder. It's called money laundering, all right? <laughs> something, something derivatives uh, shell company. Speaking of money laundering, I think that this might be one of the few things that this criminal did not do in his long rap sheet. Uh, I learned about this person in a book called uh, The Confidence Game uh, by Sarah Koenig, and I highly suggest reading that. Um, Not my primary reference for this episode, but this is a guy that just is bleeds charisma in a strange sense. It's not like he was like... uh, like a ladies man or like some sort of foxy to sway everybody. He just like bled charisma. Um, And you'll see why as I go on. He has a whole lot of attacks about that, but ultimately he's one of the people where it doesn't seem like he was maliciously doing anything terrible. Um, He was still doing bad things that put a good bit of people in danger, honestly. Uh, But also I think he's an ultimate fake until you make it story. Now, I push back on that a little bit. I don't think he's a bad person with bad intentions, but he willingly did things that he should not have done. Like you said, they endangered people's lives, but like willing i don't want to give anything away so i'm like holding back and being it, it, this is a lot we should uh, <laughs> look i this, there's two sides of this coin for me one like i've said before about you know malicious intentions whatever 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 i think that he is some of the most 
wasted potential of an individual who, who could have done great things if he was on the right track or is arguably the most successful method actor that we've ever seen. Yeah. And it comes to the price, too. And it's not only jail time. So we are going to be talking about a man who lived a life of many careers, including a monk, a college dean of psychology, deputy prison warden, hotel bookkeeper, bus driver, priest, and various roles in the U.S. Army, U.S. Navy, and Canadian Navy. The catch is he qualified for nearly none of these careers. Technically, he wasn't even in these roles. The people whose identities he stole were. This is the story of a man that wanted to leave a mostly positive impression on the world and be remembered by cutting as many corners as possible while still maintaining a strange form of integrity. This story is also a textbook case of how boredom with a steady life can be one's worst enemy. This is the story about Ferdinand Waldo DeMauro Jr., who also goes by Fred DeMara. Uh, this, he's just, I, just from me saying that, this guy clearly could not sit still for a single fucking second in his entire life. The problem is he was a little bit too smart for his own good in terms of, um, like, not book smarts necessarily, just he understood how people worked. This guy definitely understood that. The problem is he didn't understand how he worked most of the time. And I think that's where most of his problems came from. Or he didn't look into the future. Like, he was always, like, two steps ahead when he needed to be five steps ahead, maybe, and consider how certain implications would come back to bite him in the ass in the future. I, w I would say that he was somebody who was always looking for something as guidance. And when he finally found that something, he realized it was never quite what he was hoping for. Yeah. What he achieved was enough but it was never good enough. He he didn't necessarily always look for like money or anything like that. He didn't steal no. too often. He wanted Unless recognition. He wanted to be known. Yeah. Um. I think that's the long and short of him. Which <laughs> and was part of his downfall. Yeah. Uh, Greg, are you uh, at all familiar with this guy? Well, I was actually, one thing I wanted to throw out there was just because I remember when you first pitched this idea and I imagine most y'all figured this out, but... This is not the same guy from Catch Me If You Can. That's no, Frank, it sounds very similar. Frank Abagnale, yes, right? Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, I just want to throw that out there. It's there's it kind of rhymes with that story, right? But they're very differently motivated, different periods, all this stuff. But it it's kind of got a catch me if you can energy. For the while not in any while yeah. not being about Frank Abagnale Abagnale Jr. Jr. Yes. For the record, I think that Frank Abagnale Jr. is a little bit low on our priority list for everything but murder, just because everybody knows that story already. Knock knock. Um, this guy, if you are familiar with an old movie called The Great Imposter, maybe you're a little bit more familiar with it. But this hasn't really gotten too much mainstream coverage in recent years because I mean the story is mostly over. So <laughs> I would I would agree with that. Uh, shall we get into it? Yeah. First of all, my list of sources are The Great Imposter and a book called The Rascal on the Road. Uh, and these are both by a man named Robert Crichton. Not any relation to the other Crichton that wrote, what, the Jurassic Park books? I, that was my next question. Was no, it... no relation. Okay. <laughs> uh, not Michael Crichton, no. This is Robert Crichton. Bob. Yeah, Walker Cronkite. Yes. The Butler you. and Batman. Um, and also, I had to dig up a couple of uh, New York Times articles throughout the years, like from like the 70s and stuff, because they were the best source of information for like just beyond 
where most of Fred's story cuts off, which is right around about like 1960, because that's when the Great Impostor was finished being written, and then everybody kind of just fucked off and forgot to like never check back on it. Same year as the Great Train Robbery. Yeah, actually, we'll get out of this decade at some point. Did you find? I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. Did you find that Life article? I did not. I tried. I, I, I tried too. Okay, that's what I was wondering. I'm still gonna hunt it down just for my collection's sake, but no. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll we'll get to that. He so just uh, I'm putting a little spoiler ahead. He actually did an article with Life Magazine about himself. Yeah, he did, and uh, he regretted it. And he still kept doing this shit afterwards. So, uh, another disclaimer is that, uh, all right, I'm going to read this as I wrote it. It's my disclaimer. I will be frequently switching between using Fred's actual name and the names that he had masqueraded with, depending on the appropriateness of the situation. I also would like to note that, while this is very thorough retelling of Fred's story, it is important to keep in mind that he had a part in determining how it was told. While many events have corroboration from unrelated third parties, the fine details should be taken with at least some suspicion. Now, uh, the, great impo- the Great Imposter <laughs> is essentially a, uh, it's an autobiography. And same thing for The Rascal in the Road. Uh, the Rascal in the Road is Robert Crichton's telling of his time with Damara as they were writing the book, The Great Imposter. And like I said, both of these involved a lot of Fred's say. He ultimately like had, you know, final say on The Great Imposter. Not so much The Rascal in the Road, though. So... I trust one a little bit more than the other, but it's a damn good story regardless. So just sit back and enjoy it. Fred was born in 1921 in Lawrence, Massachusetts to Ferdinand DeMar Sr., obviously, and Mary McNelly. His little sister's name was Elaine. And Fred loved the sister, but she always seemed to be like the older one of the, uh, the more composed, like the more based in reality one with not such like lofty uh, ideals and everything. She just kind of was the responsible one out of the two siblings. Um, and according to Robert Crichton, he grew up in a house of, quote, discipline and repression of man's baser instincts. So it was pretty much like a very, very religious in the sense of like the platitudes, not as much as them, like always being like going to church, saying prayer every three hours or something like that. It was more of strictness. He's kind of an OG incel. Yeah. And (laughs) honestly, I mean, like I'm being tongue in cheek, but like as I was reading his story about his upbringing, I I was like, like, yeah, this dude straight up was like everything you hear about repressed sexuality, repressed this, anything where people like were raised in a disciplined household and they like lash out later. There is some like deep, deep rooted, like Nate, well, nurture induced, psychological issues yeah, that I, this dude grapples his entire story. I half agree with that. I don't think that Fred was raised much different than any other well-to-do kid in like uh, that time and day. Maybe so. Maybe so. Um, it might have just been him. Like yeah. it just might have been how he's wired. Potentially. Because um, he's wired differently. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the Damara family got their wealth from something called the Toomey Damara uh, Entertainment Company. His dad decided that in Lawrence, Massachusetts at the time, there was jack shit to do at any time whatsoever. So he thought he'd go ahead and buy up a couple of buildings and start penny theaters in them. 
and eventually it expanded more and more. Uh, him and his partner got a whole theater chain and then also had a couple of other different types of entertainment. Like I think they ran like an actual theater, like not like a movie theater. And uh, they just had a couple of different entertainment spots throughout the town. So they pretty much were responsible for all the entertainment in the city. And it paid off pretty well because they had a house on a place called Jackson Street, which apparently was the uh, like the higher up street in uh, Lawrence, Massachusetts. So... He was doing pretty good. They even like, they had like uh, servants in the house, like, or like, you know, uh, helpers and everything. Like to the point where when I think Fred turned four or something like that, his dad like required all the butlers and everything to call him Mr. Damara. So that just shows that kind of starts building his self-sense of importance from the get-go. However, he was actually enrolled in public school. And the thing about him being in public school is that's cool. It kind of like gets him more involved with like a little bit more normal or uh, less fantastically raised children and such. The, the thing is, though, is they sent him over there in like some really rich kid clothing. So he was most of the time ostracized. Mm-hmm. So he kind of was a loner for the most part. And he didn't hate it. He actually was OK with being alone. But when he was like involved with certain different types of games, uh, number one. He did not want to do anything that involved any sort of violence, whether it be like, you know, horseplay type of violence or anything like that. He just did not like hitting another person. Or he also, whenever there was like a team-based sport, he had to be the one giving the orders. He had to be the one at the top of the chain. He had this sense of like command that he always needed to have over other people. I think that says a lot about him too. Uh, And the interesting part about the whole non-violence thing is uh, if you've ever seen a picture of Fred, he's a big dude. Like, yes, he he's, was at least six, two, six, three, something like that. And stocky as hell. Yeah, like, he was built like a, he like was a, a linebacker. Yeah. So he did, however, pretty much get into trouble pretty early on. So his first brush with the law was in fifth grade. And one kid thought that Fred snitched on him for something, for some reason. And they told him like him and a bunch of like a posse of his friends came over to Fred like during, like, during an early period and was just like, we're going to get you. Like they start, they threatened like gouge his eyes and uh, out and shit like that. So Fred was like, okay, this is a problem. So he decides to go home during mid, uh, during like uh, early morning break, he comes back. And then during lunchtime, when he's in the yard, they come to try to quote unquote, get him. They were making good on their promise. And Fred pulled out a dueling pistol from his pocket and threatened to shoot them. right here. He said, I'm going to go quote Aaron Burr on your ass. <laughs> yeah. So uh, in fifth grade, he made his first threat to violence. Like he doesn't, he's a nonviolent person, but he has no problem threatening to kill people. Well, there's also a story uh, that I read early on where he found a pair of like stockings or pants and put them on the side of the road, like stuffed them so it looked like somebody was stuck in the snow, like on the side of the road with their legs sticking out and just sat back and watched as people like freak the fuck out driving by, like slamming on their brakes to like go try to help this person that they thought needed help. And he just just enjoyed watching it. That was the greatest thing ever for him. I mean, TV was hard to come by back then. I mean, you do have to entertain yourself <laughs> in Lawrence, Massachusetts or Lawrence, Massachusetts, right? Yeah. OK, I'm right. So. The cops came, they confiscated, turns out, both dueling pistols that he had. He took two of them. Uh, didn't decide to throw uh, the so other kid the in. It wasn't a dueling pistol, it was dual pistols, dual wielding, obviously. Oh, no, it wasn't dual wielding <laughs> pistols. This is a gold knife. I'm just being an asshole. <laughs> um, 
And he really didn't get too many repercussions from this, aside from being transferred to a different school. He uh, went to a parochial school, like a Catholic parochial school, and he hated it there. Uh, it was too high discipline for the most part. Like, he was already used to the type that he's used to around the house. He didn't need any more. And he just brooded the entire time there. However, this is when Fred actually, I guess, had his first brush with true religion. Uh, he had, like, an epiphany story where he was pouting in the hallway, or not even pouting, actually, just kind of, like, I guess looking to have a mean face. It's, it's more brooding than, than crying. And behind him, a, the mother superior came up, as he was just sitting there in the hall and she according to fred put her uh part of her gown or i don't know what you call it a cape or whatever what a nun's cloak 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 that's the word for it she put her cloak around him just so he can kind of have some privacy to kind of let it go i guess she could tell he was feeling that bad and he just started bawling crying and just let it all out all at once and after that he decided he'd dedicate himself to god and from that point on, at least for a while, he dedicated himself to wanting to become a bishop. So this is when he first kind of had like some drive in his life to do something other than just be seen and respected as Fred. And another thing about it is like everywhere he went, he usually ended up becoming ostracized just because of who he was in general. And like one of his quotes that kind of explains it pretty well is like, uh, maybe that was the beginning of the pattern. Just when I belonged, I didn't. So I feel like Fred, at some points, you'll see where if it feels like he started to feel like he belonged, that means he got too comfortable there and he kind of almost ostracizes himself from the rest of the group and sees himself out of it or forces other people to force him out. It's kind of a weird pattern and I don't get it. I don't think I'm that type of person, but apparently some people are. Uh, so the problem is right after Fred found uh, some faith, uh, his dad got kicked out of his company. Uh, the Toomey Damar uh, Entertainment Company outed uh, Fred Sr. And it kind of devastated both of the Damara males. The women, um, Elaine and Mary, took it very well for the most part, or at least as well as you can. They were used to living a little bit like downsize, but this kind of ruined both the Freds. Both of them were just like, no, we're going to make it back. We're going to get back to it. Dad can do it, and we're just going to be back on Jackson Street in no time because they lost the house and everything. And I remember at some point reading that, like, when Fred came home one day, the way he got introduced was his, uh, his sister was on, like, the pl a play set, and she just looks at him and goes, we're losing the house, Fred. <laughs> and she, and he, he, he thought she was pranking him. She wasn't. And that really put a dent on them. Uh, it, it was completely like emasculating to them, I guess, to some degree. Yeah. That's how I took it. And I believe it was, uh, like a, <laughs> like trickle down economics, you know, but, but like part of the, uh, as a buy, uh, I guess a buy fact or a, a repercussion or a domino, I guess a, a domino of the, the great depression of the stock market crashing is what I read was that there was a byproduct. That's the word I'm looking for. Jesus. It was a byproduct of the great depression is why, they were kicked out the company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that would make sense for a certain degree is because when, uh, you know, some sort of like crazy, you know, depression happens, the first thing to go is entertainment. Oh, like, absolutely. Same with you know, you, inflation. If you're paring too. down to the bare necessities, you don't need to be going to any theaters. So that's unfortunate. I couldn't find too, too much on the exact reasons of why, like, Damara specifically got kicked out. But uh, I would be willing to bet that, it, yeah, you're probably on the right track. It might have been because his son's an asshole. 
<laughs> what he, so he brings guns to school. <laughs> hey, Fred, your kid sucks. We're, we're pushing you out. Um, so, but this led to Fred, number one, falling away from Jesus a little bit early on. Um, he'll keep bouncing in and out and back and forth to it, like getting really devout and then really not devout. But this is the first time they did that, and he got to pull off his first little grift. And this is probably the least detailed one, but I'm trying to figure out exactly what he did. Maybe y'all can have some idea of how he pulled it off. So there was a Valentine's Day ceremony at this parochial school, and all the kids were to exchange presents with each other. And Fred decided he wanted to make a big deal of it and make himself look like the big guy, the savior of the day. He wanted to get like a big fucking like three pound box of chocolates for the kid that he was going to be gifting. And it was supposed to be delivered on the dot at 3 p.m. right as the ceremony was starting. That box of chocolates never came. Also, I did find it interesting that the time was for right when everybody would see it. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, like oh, it's a showmanship thing. He has to be seen. Yes. And remind yes. me again, how old is he at this time? Um, He was about, I think, uh, he was like, past fifth grade. So he was about like 13 or so, 12 or 13. That's like eighth grade. Yeah. So. Yeah. Probably somewhere around there. So as we go, it turns out he went over to this candy shop that the Damara still had a credit line at. We do know it happened the first time was is that this is right when a lot of their credit lines were getting closed off. So it didn't show up. And the gnome was like, it's Fred, it's okay if it doesn't show up. We, we can always do something another time. And he started just like throwing a fit like, no, it's going to show up. And he left in a storm, stomping, screaming, ran out, um, calling everybody fakes and stuff. He's the, they're the problem, not him. And vowing that he would show them. Now, being a kid who just brought a pistol to school and got kicked out of the other one because of bringing a pistol to school, I would be a little bit scared if I saw Fred running out saying, I'll show you. Yeah. But I guess this was before that kind of trend started. So he ran out into the hills of Lawrence, Massachusetts, or just beyond the border of the town. And in some sort of like ceremonious way, he hung out under the moon, which he has an affiliation for. And decided to kind of have some therapy by burning down a cedar tree and watching it burn for the rest of the night. Don't know. Uh, just do what you do. But it really shows that Fred's biggest issue on earth, the thing that he hates the absolute most is to be made to look a fool. He hates looking ridiculous. That is the worst thing that could happen to him. I feel like he, he would rather die than have looked ridiculous on like national TV or something like that. He's just like someone who's easily humiliated and takes it very seriously. That's like a common thing. He just like, he can't be made to look the fool, right? It it fits so well with the personality you've been, you've been kind of painting for us, right? He wants to be a leader. He doesn't want to do it. Like he, he wants to be the calm, collected, mature, in control, directing. Like it, it, it just so runs counter to everything he sees about himself. So the thing about him is that I think everybody doesn't want to look be embarrassed or anything like that but some people have some humility fred had zero humility for the most part like if somebody was laughing it wanted to be because he made them laugh he had no intentionally skin. yeah talking he, about being thick skin he had no skin he wanted control and how people view him and that was a part of lost control for him it's not really known what happened between that night and what happened the next day at school but what did happen the next day at school is during one of the uh like i guess assemblies at about 3 p.m., a candy man showed up, and he had a box of chocolates for every kid in the entire uh, class. 
and he had a big two-pound extra-large box of chocolate for the kid that Fred initially was supposed to give a gift to. And from then on, he was known at some schools as the Candy Butcher. I really wish I could have gotten more information about that, because I'm really wondering if he threatened somebody. I don't think that's his, like, M.O., but uh, I I think he managed to somehow say something about the account being restored to them, and they kind of trusted it because it was Damara. However... Due to all this uh, kind of like tomfoolery that he's getting involved in, Fred's dad did notice that he was kind of falling away from his religion. So he decided to send him off for a weekend or so to uh, stay with a guy called Father uh, Desmaris, not Demara, Desmaris. And he spent some time with him, uh, with this priest. And as they were on a drive out to the countryside, uh, they passed by a Trappist monk monastery. And Fred was absolutely enthralled by it. He immediately wanted to do that. And uh, are you guys aware of what Trappist monks do? That's the guy I brought my weed from in college, right? Oh, my right? God. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm familiar with the concept of Trappists, but, but, but yeah. It's essentially a vow of silence. It's all labor and contemplation. It is a wake up at 3 a.m. and work till sundown. You only eat the bare minimum of bread and water. Uh, and it's all just a service to God of pretty much removing any sort of pleasures in life other than the pleasure of toiling away for the Lord. And Fred saw the hard work that they were doing and the discipline that they had, and it seemed to have just like piqued his interest beyond no measure. Like, And, and it really can't be overemphasized. These are like self-sustaining communes, essentially, Yeah, that they cannot interact with people outside of the walls and they have like special doctors they bring in when people are sick. Like they, like it's a very, there's different levels of like intensity. I think another term for it is intentional Sorry, farm. cloistered are the ones that literally can't interact with people. But Trappists basically just live in like a commune and like very, very discouraged from much external interaction beyond well, what is necessary. I, I make jokes earlier, but I, from the research that I did and I think I understood it. I mean, I guess you'll tell me if I didn't. But it was based off of like where that was founded was the Trappist area or whatever. And the guy who was one of the founding members of it was like a farmer. So that's kind of like where a lot of their values come from mm. is is that individual. Working the land is kind of yeah. like a labor for God. Yes, sure. yes. So a few weeks after Fred had come back from his stay with uh, Father Desmaris, he was all good. His religion was back. He was more dedicated than ever. But tragedy struck. Uh, on the way home from grocery shopping one day, Elaine, his sister, uh, slipped on ice and hit her head. And she said that she had a headache that like no aspirin could relieve. And that same night, she fixed dinner, went to bed, and didn't wake up. That's terrible. Obviously, this devastated the entire family. Um, there's no need to say anything else. It's not like they hated Elaine or anything like that. But even if they did, it's still losing a sister, daughter, and everything. That's terrible. Uh, Fred and uh, Fred were obviously broken up. It's like insult on top of injury. Because shortly after that as well, Fred's dad was given an offer by his former, um, I guess not co-workers, what would be the term, partners. They invited him to go speak. And when he went and met with them, instead of giving him a job as like a manager of something or maybe becoming a partner again, they offered him a job as a projectionist at the theater. So this is when Fred and Fred realized they're never going back to the house on Jackson Street. And Fred also realized, I can't do this anymore. So a couple days later on the way to school, he said, eh, if 
fuck this. He sold his bike for $8 and then uh, took a train over to Valley Falls, Rhode Island. And when he got there, he went to the Trappist Monk Monastery that he had seen previously and knocked on their door. They tried to push him away, so you can't come in here or anything like that. And he told them pretty much, no, bullshit. I heard that you cannot deny anybody that comes at your, that comes to your door. So they let him in, and Fred began his first venture as a man of the cloth to some degree. And he became uh, Brother Mary Jerome. That's what his name was there. And the thing about this is Fred actually did really well at this monastery for a while. In a sense, he loved the shit out of the hard work that he was doing. He would toil the fields. He uh, was from sunup to sundown, just working hard and hard and hard. And it almost seemed like the monks were a little bit disturbed about how much he was enjoying it. Because you're not exactly supposed to have like the joy and the emotion. You're supposed to be very contemplative. And that's one thing that Fred didn't like doing. It's like parenting. Yeah, <laughs> I I don't know that. Wait, Greg's laughing. I just laughed because he was. I don't get that yet. Dad jokes, huh? I'm more. I'm more. Just I'm. 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 I'm feeling Josh venting that thousand yard stare right now. That's that's the, like I know that's a weird way of putting it, but it's honest. It's literally what's happening here. There's <laughs> a bit of a thousand yard stare happening here. Fred was actually in charge of these two mules at the monastery. And this is kind of his way of dealing with the whole no talking thing because he loved to talk his ass off. Uh, The mules were, I believe, Luther and Lucifer. And he would always be walking them through the fields. And since they needed to kind of be taken in line, they're mules, they're notoriously stubborn. He had to keep them interested and keep talking to them. So he would just be talking his ass off to these... (laughs) (laughs) To these oh, mules. The ass off the and the monks were kind of upset by that. And then Fred also started to do things like when he'd be uh, at dinner or whatever, he'd take a little bit too much bread. And <laughs> at one point, they tried to be sarcastically trying to chide him. And they'd give him like one extra and just be like, can I get like two extra? He'd like sign that with his hands. Like, can I get two extra maybe? Uh, the, he just didn't have any humility whatsoever. So eventually the uh, abbot of the monastery said, look, you're great here with your work and everything, but you're not very contemplative. I don't think you're a good fit. So please kindly fuck off. But I did write you a good letter of recommendation. So you left. Uh, great farmer. Yeah. Shit monk. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> he didn't He didn't enjoy having to leave, but he managed to head to uh, the Brothers of Charity in Boston. And he actually hated the work there for some reason. Uh, he did take advantage of it and he learned French, which was good. But he also... He didn't mind the work. He was just being a Pats fan. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean... You know. Uh, he also worked with a bunch of recovering priests that were coming from drug addiction and alcohol addiction. And they were always desperate for somebody to talk to. And Fred turned out to be the best type of person to talk to because he could not only talk his head off to people, he was also extremely good at listening. Great conversation. But through that, he got to learn about the inner workings of these religious orders, several different ones. And he learned exactly like the humanity and also the faults of how these religious institutions worked and how all the cogs in the system work. And they are definitely imperfect. So much so that at that point, Fred said that he had never, ever felt nervous in the presence of a bishop ever again. He eventually left once he got chided about Fred not exactly understand the concept of charity properly. There wasn't too much in terms of the details about that, but I'm pretty sure it was a situation where he was made to look ridiculous when he thought he was doing something good. Left there, 
And he decided that he would go to a school for boys. And it was called the Boy Haven Home for Boys in Newbury, Massachusetts. The Boy Haven Home for Boys. Yeah. <laughs> he was put in charge of fourth grade. And this is where he actually probably should have just stopped there. Just This is where he would have done so well if he had just like not... I agree. If he had just buckled a little bit to other people's requests. So he noticed that the teaching program there lacked any sort of love or fun. So he decided to do some unconventional teaching, like taking the kids on field trips um, or having certain types of reading or story time hours and everything. Showing off his dueling pistols. Yes, he taught them how to shoot. <laughs> um, and he actually made it a pretty good time for the kids there uh, to the point where they were even considering like adopting some of his teaching policies. However... Um, <laughs> The administration wasn't too happy with what Fred was doing for specifically only his class because he did start a charity drive for the school, except he only funneled the money into his fourth grade class. Oh, it's like the Donald Trump Herschel Walker approach. Yeah, pretty much. So after this, uh, Fred got approached by the administration and he would not stand up for this. He pretty much threw a fit, packed up his bags and left. About 10 minutes after he was given that talking to by them. The go-to Damara response to any sort of confrontation. Yeah. Um, he takes his ball and goes home. His Every thing, time. <laughs> yes. Every time. Make a scene big enough to buy some time and then leave. Mm -hmm. But he also, this is where he starts another MO. As he was leaving, uh, he decided that uh, he was owed something a little bit to him. He, <laughs> as he was packing up, he saw the kids that he was leaving in fourth grade. He didn't even get to tell them bye, but he kind of like almost, you could see the, the tear shutting down from him because he actually did care about the kids, mm -hmm. um, but he couldn't be around them. He also decided that it would be time to learn how to drive for the first time. So he just straight up stole the school station wagon <laughs> and made his way to fucking Boston and ditched the car. And then he had his conversion moment, one of many that he has. And I, by the way, I never understood that. He drives the car to Boston to leave it and then takes a train. Yeah, because he smoked out the vehicle and was moving on, obviously. Um, he ditched the car. He ditched the car by a train station. And then he ended up in an oyster house that night. And for the first time, Fred kind of got to enjoy the viceful world where he just uh, had his first drink. Um, and he ate a little bit more than he should have. And he just got surrounded by the, uh, environment of just debauchery. Yeah. Not, not even debauchery. It was just an oyster house. He yeah, got to enjoy true. men and women interacting with each other in a casual manner. He got to enjoy the smoke of the uh, restaurant, the drinks flowing. And he even got to read the newspaper about his exploits. Cause apparently there was a posting for a stolen car from the, you know, boy Haven school for boys. And he got off on that. He yeah. He loved, loved it. Th it. Th th that type of attention is primo. Yes. Made Chef's it to the kiss. newspaper. And he woke up the next day, hung over and decided to make the most logical decision. The most reasonable next step really after leaving a Trappist monastery and a school for boys. Fred was going to join the U S army. <laughs> Note you, this was 1941. Whoopsies. That's okay. He doesn't make it that far. This was before Pearl Harbor happened. So this is him getting a little bit lucky. The second they put him in khakis, he was pretty much like, oh, nope. fuck. I done goof. Fuck this. He was trying to find a way to get out right even before he ended up at the camp in Biloxi, like, oh, America's isolationist. We would never go to a second. Oh, my God. <laughs> Lindbergh. How many tanks did you build? <laughs> Lindbergh. 
God damn it. He went to Madison Square Garden and he, he heard some interesting ideas. <laughs> By the way, this, this story ends in Nuremberg. <laughs> of all the things that Fred was, I did not find him being a Nazi, okay? Yeah. Get, buckle up, kids. We're about to take some left turns. <laughs> so as he was there... He had a giant culture shock because the, being at the Oyster House is one thing. You got to like just see it from afar. Here, people sweared and people talked about sex there. Something that Fred was largely unknown about. So much so that the kid that pulled a gun on other people in grammar school was called <laughs> the saint. And he was really upset that people pissed in front of each other and had to shower around each other. They're called sentence enhancers, SpongeBob. <laughs> so he had to wise up so that he could pretty much, at least while he was there, take as much um, enjoyment out of it as possible. He got a bunch of books about how the army system works and tried to learn every loophole in there possible. And the most famous thing that he did was he took advantage of these blue armbands that he found, which were for the commissary. And he would go up to the line in one of the, uh, the in the mess tent the, the very long line in the back he would <laughs> he would yell a random name as if he was looking to deliver us uh, order of food for commissary or something and as soon as he got towards the front rip the armband off and he'd take out his mess kit and then pretty much skip the entire line he figured that he would actually get killed if he did this enough times so he kind of had to uh, taper that down um, but while he was there he met one of his first, like, I guess, buddies, a guy named Anthony Ignolia. And this guy was from Nolens. That's not how anybody says it, by the way. I just want to correct that for everybody. We are from here. Nobody says Nolens, unless they're joking. That's right. We say New Orleans. Yes. New Orleans. Oh, that makes you the mayor. Oh. I mean, Orleans I Parish, New Orleans. So Fred and Anthony Ignolia decided that they were going to uh, go on a leave uh, on, like, a off day. And they went down to New Orleans to uh, hang out with Anthony's mom. And while they were staying at Anthony's mom's place, his mom being, I guess it sounds like a sweet little trusting mother, was like, oh, well, you know, here's Anthony's little uh, mementos from when he was a kid. And she pulled out a little lockbox and started to show Fred all the different things. I guess to maybe, you know, embarrass Anthony or something like that. But Fred was very interested in it. He took time to look at every picture and paper in there. And he was like, oh, this is so real. This is really interesting. Thank you, Miss Ignolia. And then a couple weeks later, Fred decided to take some more leave time and went back to New Orleans by himself to Anthony Ignolia's mom's house. Say hi and to just, your mother and for me. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and just asked to stay there. And she let him in. That's Like, just let him in. And the, he just he stayed the night hey, there. You and can't everything. complain about our hospitality. I, I, yeah. I will say that I would imagine at that time period, that was just most people around here, you know, Reaction. Okay, this is why I think he's the smoothest fucking talker on earth. Because he, while he was there, he was like, "Hey, Miss Ignolia, can I see that box of all your son's mementos again?" Yeah. See, I show up to Ryan's house and ask for his lockbox all the time, and he tells me, "Greg, go home. You're drunk. Why are you crying?" That'd Please be leave. No, imagine showing up to my mom's house and doing that. Uh, yeah, I don't even imagine. Hey, Ryan's mom. <laughs> do you have? Why you can't TV up like that. Hey, Mrs. Ryan's mom. Do you have his birth certificate Mrs. on hand Ryan's that I can mom. see? That's the thing. It's like, she gave Josh, him have you seen his birth certificate? I haven't seen one. Hmm. Is there a certain president that we need to track? No, to find I, birth I told you all this. We talked about this. If you, share. this is a uh, little rumor flies sidebar. If you burn your birth certificate and social security okay. number, you're off the grid forever. Nobody can track it you. It literally just transmits. Yeah. All the DMV, everyone else gets a signal flare. Now you got to start running. This guy don't exist anymore. 
So anyway. Well, actually, I got to get this off my chest because I, I can't stop thinking about it and I can't pay attention to this fucking episode. Why Josh is it? Why is it that when I take a cruise, I go to the Caribbean, but when I watch the fucking movie, it's Pirates of the Caribbean? Huh. I have not stopped thinking about tomato, this tomato. since we've said <laughs> something crematory. five minutes ago and I can't fucking focus. Orleans versus New Orleans. Yes. It blows me up my mind. It blows my fucking. Oh. You know, I, I really like to um, sip some nice Burgundy on Burgundy. On Street. Burgundy. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> Anthony's mom gives Fred the lockbox and he takes it upstairs. Like, all right, good night. Just takes it upstairs with him and just doesn't give it back until the morning. Anthony's mom's got it going on. All I can think of is that SNL skit. Lockbox. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All I can think. Every time you say lockbox. 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 Well, in the morning, Fred <laughs> went downstairs, had some breakfast and returned the lockbox. And Anthony just don't open like, it till I'm gone. Like, what a nice boy. She trusted him a lot because she did not check that lockbox until a couple weeks later. And he actually changed the lock and she had to spend weeks <laughs> trying to figure it out. She, she called Ryan and he was just worthless. And hey. Ryan was like, check out that guy on YouTube. If you hadn't figured it out yet. By the time Fred had returned to the army base, he had stolen all of Anthony's credentials. And then one day, he decided to just slip out the tent, and he had his first charge for AWOL. He was a wanted man at this point. Uh, and now, he was Anthony Ignolia, and he went to a different Trappist monk uh, monastery. I'm done playing army for now. Uh, he went to another Travis Monk monastery. That monk thing worked out well last time. Let's try that again. Round two, baby. Well, the thing is it didn't because he <laughs> left very shortly after when it turns out a transfer from the first monastery saw him and was just like, don't I know you? And then there was just like a Fred-shaped no, Fred? puff of smoke or Fred, dust. Yeah, not for, that guy's an asshole. I'm Ted. Well, here's the thing. <laughs> Fred saw him and keep in mind, these people can't really talk. So this guy pretty much went up to him just like just pointing at him doing that face like, don't I? No. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I can imagine Fred whispering him. Do you love God? Shut up. Tell anybody I'll shoot you. <laughs> so, wait, 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 wait. I dual wield. I, I, oh shit. Sorry. Uh, I was just thinking about this. So they can't talk. So I'm guessing when he sent him a lot, like when, like, does he pantomime him? Like, you leave. You no stay. My understanding, yeah. well, it's been a while since I've like read his stuff, but like my understanding is that if something's very functional, like extreme example, you're hanging from the side of a building. You would scream, somebody come help me. Yeah. Like, it's not like you're going to hell if you speak. Yeah. yeah so yeah. I imagine if the dude like thought something was like really <laughs> wrong, he would kind of be like, fuck off, Fred. <laughs> uh, I, I would say they treated talking like they depends would. Depends on the order. It does depend on the order. Yeah, Some yeah, orders yeah. are very like. They treat talking like aspirin. You take aspirin when you need to take it for a particular reason. You, have to. you don't just pop it for your your own just because you, it's fun or you want to. And a quick little, I was thinking about this earlier, but I didn't find a good time to slot it. To give you an idea of how extreme some of these, like if you go from like Trappist to the extreme, like cloistered, New Orleans, we had a, we had a cloistered nuns and they had to move them to a new location. So they had covered street cars. And like a oh, tunnel shit. they built. Oh, you can see all this photography from it. So all the um When was this? This was like in the thirties, forties. Okay. And they moved them from the Ursuline convent to a new to the oh. current Ursuline. So the Ursuline downtown, they had covered streetcars. And no one so there's all these photos of people lining the streets, but it's all completely covered, so no one saw the women. Hey, can you send me that? Yeah, I can find it. It's all like it's really well documented. It's, it's really the whole Trappist cloister thing, especially the revival during like oh, I was like 
12th century. I don't remember what century all that stuff kind of blends together, but it, it's actually really fascinating. You look at the different groups and like what their quote unquote, like their charter was like their mandate, yeah, yeah, yeah. what they were drawing from. And, you know, some groups were, we're an agrarian agricultural group and we farm and that's our thing is through farming and time with the land. We connect to God. It's, yeah. it's, all, it's so interesting to me. Sorry, continue. I just, uh, it's worth noting that this is a subject very much worth diving down the rabbit hole a bit. It's oh yeah. Fascinating stuff. So shortly after he left this monastery, uh, he heard about Pearl Harbor happening. So he actually left the army just in time and he thought he had a sense of duty where he had to start facing the music. He went back to Lawrence and he said to his parents, look, I done bad. Uh, the reason why military police showed up at the house cause they were looking for me. I went missing cause they actually did go to check for him to see if he had like escaped to there. So he I mean, logically he yeah. just missed them. And he told them, mom, dad, I'm coming clean. I'm sorry. I'm repenting. I'm going to go turn myself in. Except he didn't. Fred decided to join the U.S. Navy instead. Bro, I just don't understand that for the life of me. This, mil- I'm, this playing army is not for me. Hmm. Maybe I'll play Navy today. And this is where he realized that the army and the Navy don't communicate too often when it comes to personnel tracking. Mm, yeah. That was, to me, the thing that was very like a product of its time story also this oh, is 100 this is right when the u.s had joined world war ii so they were looking for as many recruits as possible uh he got put on the uss Alex. the navy in the 40s was a dangerous prospect yeah <laughs> uh he almost the next 20 years had quite the outlook <laughs> so he almost immediately got placed on the uh, uss ellis in the north atlantic run and he didn't like it uh he didn't like not being the top dog there if it is matter of fact he's pretty much the bottom dog but he took advantage of it to the point where he started applying for hospital school and he applied so much and passed them so much that they eventually just like, fine, we'll let you in, whatever you have like no education, but we'll let you in. And he actually graduated through basic training in hospital school. He went to apply for advanced classes and they wouldn't let him join because he wasn't qualified enough for it. Do you know why? Cause the documents that he forged didn't have enough mathematics in it. Oh, I did not know that part. Yep. Yeah, so he did forge some documents for himself, but um, he hadn't learned exactly how to make the perfect thing for the perfect target. No, but that was the first instance when he really tried to figure out how to start document forging to oh, benefit yeah. himself and get what he wanted. We're about to get into what's It was called- like laying the, the groundwork and foundation for what is about to come. We're about to get into his logistics. That's what I want to do. I want my crucible for refining my illegal craft to be with the U.S. government. That's exactly how I like to handle things. Really, really get in there. And if you make it through that, you can make it anywhere. Well, I don't know if you know this, too, but they're like once once you become part of the government and you like you manifest like documents or you can just declassify them anytime you want as well. Shut up. I'll get off my soapbox. I've got my, that was, that was a Josh whistle laugh right there. <laughs> <laughs> so, so don't get this confused about Fred. Even though he's usually not qualified on paper, most of the time, Fred was actually qualified practically, or at least to some degree. He actually did put in the work most of the time. Like he graduated at hospital school. A student of practice. He took his time to actually read medical journals like The Lancet and uh, Nature and stuff to kind of keep up on what he would be doing in his role that he is imposturing. Well, that was one thing about like with him in school that I that I, I heard over and over again when doing research was like he was never a great student because he never applied himself. 
but he did a lot of side reading. So he was always reading and like learning, but it was never for school or anything like that. It was only what he wanted to learn that would benefit him. He was a corner cutter. He would rather pass by proving himself as yes. opposed to doing it on paper and having to know every little bit. He liked the to pare it down. Published to... in the Lancet was having his best friend Andrew look over his material. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> what? <laughs> oh yeah, <fuck. laughs> I knew you would get there. <laughs> Um, sorry. So I cut you off when you were actually saying something meaningful. Please continue. (laughs) He wanted to, uh, see his way out of this. So what he did was he decided to go to his commanding officer and he decided to say that some of the officer's wives were, uh, abusing the commissary privileges. And while he was doing that, he lit a cigarette while talking to his, uh, CO and, (laughs) So he pulled out a cigarette that was uh, dipped in kerosene and coated in wax. And right as he lit it, he just ashed it into the garbage bin next to the captain's desk. And immediately the garbage can obviously caught fire. And Fred made a scene. He went, fire, fire, put it, get a fire extinguisher, get a fire extinguisher. So his captain obviously did that. And as soon as his captain left the room to get a fire extinguisher, Fred yoinked a whole bunch of official itinerary from the captain so he could start forging papers. As soon as the captain came back, Fred started apologizing profusely. The captain said, get the fuck out. And Fred got transferred almost immediately after that. Um, And this is when Fred started doing something called papering in advance. Now, (laughs) what he would do is he would check a bunch of state registrars for different colleges and check out people's names and see what their qualifications were. And when he saw one that he liked, he would start writing out to the school on different itinerary, like the captain's itinerary or, or something like that. And he would ask for these people's transcripts and he'd do it several times as either the captain or as the person themselves. Mm-hmm. And he would have it all routed back to his, uh, the official um, shipping address for the captain, which is actually just a mailbox that was at a gas station that he paid a dollar a month to pretty much have his official mailing spot. And he would be collecting all these different people's information. And when he saw like that, he had enough information from one person, he would start trying to build up that person and start, learning how to become that person. It was really cool how he did it. Um, Smart as hell. And he actually learned that from a book. I think it was called just like, How to Become a Private Detective and Make Lots of Money. I need to find that book. (laughs) And one of the things that I came across too, uh, and it was, was, I forget which source source it was, excuse me. So so forgive me for that. But he, there was a, a quote from him, something along the lines of, if you give me 10 days, I can be anybody I want to be. Meaning that like within 10 days from when he started, from when he started 10 days later, he would have everything he needed to become that person. Yeah. Um, another thing that he would do is, uh, well, actually, I'll just say, I'll, I'll explain the story. He liked to get sources from as many places as possible. If there was an official stationery of some sort, you bet your ass if Fred is in the room around it, he's going to steal at oh, least yeah. some of it. Yeah. And he officially decided to take up his first non uh, he decided to take up the identity of somebody that he didn't know for the first time he decided that he liked the identity of dr robert linton french phd and this is how he was going to get into um advanced medical school first he stopped off at lawrence and decided to steal some baptismal certificates by distracting a nun by spilling over a holy water vessel and while she was cleaning up lifted that headed over to boston spoke to the bishop and kind of like shot the shit with him enough and lifted some of his red stationery afterwards. So he had the Bishop of Boston stationery. And 
after applying to a couple different places, he got word back from a university in Norfolk that he'd be accepted into advanced hospital training as Dr. Robert Linton French. All they needed was a background check. Now, it's one thing to have Fred be able to talk to people and like forge what other people say. But when it comes to background checks, they might call that person. Yeah. And when there's like, who the fuck is this? Mm -hmm. Fred didn't see that as something very tenable or like he thought it was insurmountable. He's probably right. So a few weeks later, Fred was still applying as himself to this advanced hospital school, but like kind of making like, you know, making his own name a bit more haughty, like by forging his own credentials, especially with like the captain's notes and everything. He got a letter from a a hospital school in Norfolk where he was going to be accepted for advanced training. However, they needed to do run a background check first. Fred saw this as a big problem. He could not fake somebody else's call or anything like that. That was too out of his control. So what do you think he did? Hmm. I would imagine he ran. Yeah, he ran in a little bit different way than just leaving AWOL from the camp. He decided to go out to a pier, leave all of his Navy clothes, and then write a fake suicide note. Fred faked his own death. He's twice AWOL, and now he's also faking his own death. Mm, from it. now on, he was Dr. Robert Linton French full-time because Fred DeMara was dead. Mm-hmm. So he decided to go to a place called Gethsemane Monastery as Dr. French. He just loved being at monasteries. He thought it would work every time. I guess you stick with what you know. Hey, man, what are the odds someone's going to recognize you twice, right? Right. And here's a little part where we're going to talk about one of Fred's tenets. Um, Crichton wrote that Fred said that in order to succeed, all imposters must sooner or later learn and have confidence that the burden of proof is always on the accuser. And it's kind of true for the most part. So while he was at Gethsemane, he did well for a while until pretty much his desire just to talk got to him. And this is the funny part about it. Cause like he found another monk who was a little bit less than devout about the same level as Fred. They would go out and do some fucking heinous shit. Guys, these monks, they would go out to the graveyard. It's like the old vineyard and just eat grapes all day. What? And they would talk to each other. They would fucking just throw down. They wouldn't drink or anything like that. They wouldn't make wine out of the grapes. They would just eat the grapes. However, it actually ended up staining uh, his frocks. And it, he saw it as kind of like a scarlet leather uh, on like his frocks because he had this purple stain from the grapes on him just from him eating too much. The shame followed um, him around. He eventually got taken down when they did something called the Ritual of Faults where it was like a confession except in front of a whole group of people in front of the rest of the monastery. Um, and eventually the other monk buckled and decided to tell of his discretions, uh, discretions against the Abbey. However, that many took Fred down with him. So Fred had to leave. He couldn't deal with it. Um, isn't there like some like confidentiality and no repercussions kind of thing? Uh, it was more of a look ridiculous type of situation again. Oh, okay. Okay. That but they did sense. ask him to leave because they thought he wasn't contemplative enough. Once again, um, however, on his way out in like a, the most, I, this is almost two storybook of a fashion. He was on a Kentucky road and an old Kentucky farmer pulled up on a truck and offered him a, to hitch him a ride. So Fred sat in the back of the truck bed dung pile and exchanged swigs of whiskey, like moonshine with the Kentucky far- farmer. So like pass the bottle through the window yeah, to yeah, Fred, yeah. Fred passes the bottle of whiskey back to the uh, farmer who is driving the car. I was to say a little drinking and driving. Never hurt nobody. Huh? Um, 
And kids don't do that. That's a joke. I should step. Up. I need to say that we don't condone that behavior. Fred was at like his lowest at this point. He had tried so many things and been kicked out of so many different abbeys. However, he saw this as a sign when he got to, you know, just relax a little bit, drink and just hang out with a farmer and talk his ass off. And then he asked him where the farmer was headed. He said, New Hope, <laughs> Kentucky. Fred took that as a sign and pretty much passed out and woke up the next day on the dung pile. I've been there. Yeah. Um, then he made it to a place called, once more, the New Sabacchio Monastery. He just really wanted to get into them. Um, he's, the, he's like a pledge. First semester of college is trying to get in a fraternity and nobody will take him. And you know what? I'm, str- I'm switching for a bit. Fred didn't do that. Dr. Robert Linton French oh, okay. showed up at the monastery. Yeah. And when Dr. French showed up, he had letters from two different cardinals, um, a, uh, a church Senator in Kansas. Lawrence. Yeah, the senator of Kansas. He was loaded with different recommendations and papers. Like, he looked really good on paper. So they let him in, and then shortly afterwards, a uh, couple of days, they showed up to him again and said, Hey, can we look at those papers again? And Fred gave them to him reluctantly. And this is when he started to get so anxious that he would start drinking himself to sleep every night. And after this, they eventually did confront him about the paper saying, hey, these look like forgeries. And this is when Fred decided to incorporate something called folks law. And the longest short of it is when in danger, attack. He's not wrong. Like Jordan Peterson. When you know, there's a rat in the corner. Oh, God. <laughs> the rat attacks. God. So... When he was confronted about this, he decided to throw a fit, storm out, and then storm back in to pick up his papers because they were still useful to him, and then storm back out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he also used his copy of the abbot's key to steal some stationery, as is the tradition. Um, <laughs> he took his now signature big green steamer trunk that he used to just lug around on his back, and he once again stole the car of the monastery and left. Just, this guy is so good at Grand Theft Auto and going AWOL. He's, it's really impressive, actually. It's like the abrupt chaos bingo every time he leaves. Yeah. However, he did end up flipping that car into a snow patch when a cop was uh, chasing him. The cop helped him out. And the long and short of it is that they dropped all the charges. The monastery didn't want to have anything to do with them because they were so embarrassed by the institution. Like mm-hmm. they, as an institution, didn't want to have anything to do with like this stain of them being embarrassed by somebody pulling the wool over them that bad. Um, I don't blame them. Yeah. So then Fred was on to his next venture. Sorry, Doctor Robert Linton Lynch- French was on his next venture. Uh, he got on a bus with a hundred dollars, a lot for the time. Doctor Father Fred Linton French, PhD. Yeah. <laughs> He got on a bus with $100, his Gethsemane frocks, and a Smith & Wesson 38 special. <laughs> From there on, he ended up in Chicago. But while on a stop in Kansas, Dr. French offered his services to a college as the head of the Department of Psychology. And in Kansas, he also tried to join an intellectual group known as the Clerics of St. Viator. I don't know who St. Viator is, but whatever. Um, and he actually did perform well enough to become baptized into the church. And he was sent to DePaul University from Chicago, and he took a crash course in theology. And he did pretty well to the point where he was even got his own official stamp, which, this kicker, his official stamp was in Latin. It was Essay Quam Vitae. Greg, do you know what that means in Latin? Do you remember your five years of Latin? To be something, so it's a form of to be and something life. So uh, to, to, what is it? To be, not seem to be. Oh, uh, okay. Sorry, wrong, 
First word correct, second word not. No, it was pretty good. That's pretty good. That's pretty rich. That's a that's a fantastic. For him, love it on him. Not to seem. And the thing is, this is where Fred started to hone episode title. (laughs) Actually, that'd be kind of. That's actually pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, So this is where Fred decided to like hone his conversational skills and really learn how to deal with people in terms of being a hiding in plain sight enigma, and. Fred had a pretty thick Boston accent and Dr. French was not supposedly from Boston. So he had ways to work around this. And this is Damara's law, as he would call it. And does either of you want to read Damara's law? Almost all imposters I have found cut out a picture what they think they should look like. And then they begin piling up mounds of plausible sounding information behind that silhouette. Say they are supposed to come from Saginaw. What do they do? They learn the name of the high school, of some streets, all sorts of information. When someone mentions Saginaw, they leap right in, spouting information left and right. This, they feel, proves they must be genuine. But I say, once they mention anything definite, they are now on record. I never mention anything. Don't be too obvious about not mentioning anything, but always leave them with a shadow. If you meet someone who does come from Saginaw, you've got to change the conversation or let them do the talking. Which, if you lead him the right way, he will do. Wherever I have left, people are always suddenly amazed to find they don't know one damn thing about me. Where was I supposed to come from and have been? Although they all thought they did. That is, until the police started asking for specifics. That's Damara's law, for seeming to be real and staying as loose and free as a wild goose. The hubris, the the just sheer self-importance to name your own law. I just it, it 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 just really sticks with me. To be fair, this guy is the great imposter. I'm just saying. It's it, like, it it's like let me profile. tell you all Greg's law. Greg's law of fatherhood, right? It, it, it just it's just like I I there's just something so insufferable about naming. It's like giving yourself a nickname. <laughs> I mean, like I don't know. You think that guy Murphy would be like, "Man, that should be a law about that shit." It's self-deprecating enough that I would allow it, but I would still raise an eyebrow. Yeah, yeah. That's fair. So around this time, uh, Fred had been at DePaul for about a year, and he was doing great. Um, However, they decided they wanted to recommend him for priesthood. And I think this is where Fred's back of his head said, you hate monotony, you hate monotony, you hate monotony, you're going to fucking hate doing that. You're going to hate being a priest. Don't tie yourself down to anything. And Dr. Robert... And Dr. Robert Lynn French decided it was time to leave DePaul. So, do you know what he was studying at DePaul? Uh, it was Bible studies, I want to say. It was theology, sorry, theology. Was that the one? I thought that was when you were studying law. No, it was theology for this one. Okay, because one of them went to fucking law school for a year. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he's been to a couple of different uh, places. So, around this time, World War II had ended, and Dr. French had managed to skirt the war just long enough to be able to feel a little bit more comfortable about the MPs chasing down him, because, number one, Fred was dead on the books, I guess. Um, so, he made his way over to a Gannon Catholic College, and this is in Pennsylvania, and he managed to actually talk his way into becoming the dean of the School of Philosophy, and he actually felt really comfortable there. Uh he did perform well enough since he was used to speaking to a lot of people. Yeah, he had read a lot about philosophy and he was able to teach 
pretty uh, like adequately to the point where there were no complaints about him. If anything, they really liked him as a teacher. However, his pride did get in the way, once again, because he eventually came at odds with a man named Monsignor Whirl, who Fred was pretty good friends with. However, Fred did like to hit the drink a little bit and do it kind of discreetly. And the two initial incidents that really led to a uh, butting of heads was Monsignor Whirl's dog hated Fred. And Fred knew that if a dog doesn't like you, you will not get on the good graces of that person. He was lucky he was friends enough with that person. Um, so much so that he would just like kind of like tease the dog in a way where he would like uh, have the dog on the leash and put it at the end of a hallway and then put a piece of meat at the end of the hallway because just like out of like a pettiness and then let the leash loose and the dog would go sliding around the marble floor right north towards the end and then hit the wall. I mean, nothing like too, too mean. But it, it was it was mean. Just enough but to teach him a lesson. He was fucking with the dog. Um, but I after don't know that, why this dog doesn't like me. Yeah, yeah. right? I, it's hard to imagine why. Um, but also there was the beer incident. He liked to uh, drink a little bit, as you can already know from previously learning about him. And he would smuggle in beer by getting it in a laundry basket with clothes and walking in every night. Eventually, Monsignor World was like, you're doing a lot of laundry. And eventually, when they were talking at one point, Monsignor World decided to uh, kick the laundry basket. And he ended up breaking a lot of the bottles of glass of like beer in the basket. And when the laundry basket just started leaking for some reason, <laughs> Fred went into folks law. When Monsignor Whirl was asking him, like, uh, why is your laundry basket leaking right now? He was like, I'll have you know you just broke my property. You owe me two cents for each bottle that you've broken. Folks law, immediately attack, attack, attack. And I think Whirl actually paid him, too. So, what? yeah, things actually uh, ended when there was one incident where a new priest had moved in uh, to teach at the college. And the priest was old and rickety and he couldn't get upstairs. So Monsignor World decided to reassign Fred to a smaller room on, uh, I think the third floor and it was smaller. And Fred took this as just an offense to him because he didn't have his big room anymore. He thought he was like being demoted, but really it was just to help the priest. He just wasn't thinking about the fact that like, you know, <laughs> it wasn't about punishing Fred. It was about helping somebody else. So they one day came, uh, like, traded bars with each other, but eventually kind of alleviated things and pretty much buried the hatchet, I think over a glass of wine or so in um, Monsignor World's study. But the thing was, during that time of rebellion, Fred decided that he was going to order a couple of fancy rugs, uh, a whole desk, and a safe for some reason, like a really expensive safe, all on the school's bill. So... Eventually that came up. Fred conceded by the time that that, uh, that they had like made amends that, you know, he'd get rid of the rug and the desk and everything. But world was like, you need to get rid of the safe too. And Fred, instead of just being like, okay, he just said, is that an ultimatum? And the Monsignor said, well, now it is. And Fred rather Dr. Robert Lynn French stormed off started packing his bags and started to say, by the time I'm done packing my bags, you're going to be asking me to come back. World didn't come back. Mm -hmm. But as he was leaving, uh, world said, uh, Dr. French, may God go with you. And Dr. French turned around and said, Nope, he better stay here. You need him more than I do. And that was the last of his stint at uh, Gannon college. So it's just, 
he's just such a bastard when it comes to just conceding to at least the smallest things. Mm-hmm. So he definitely has it strikes me as a like I'm smart and I know it and like that seems so boiled down. But like the guy really is like it's not even whether or not he pulled the wool over someone's eyes. Mm-hmm. It's that if anyone it's not even if they think they're better than him. It's that if he's asked to be held accountable, if he's asked to answer yep. for something or explain something, his indignance is just like reverberates through his body. Yep. He's like a man possessed. He's just like, like you asked me to what? I mean, just, I, I can just see it. Anytime someone asks him something, just that like, shock and just like almost like an anime <gasps> you know just <laughs> i don't know the guy is just insufferable every every story i read about him i was just like dude you could have just walked out of that room with no problem and kept your grift going but like he, he's you almost wonder his own if he's fucking like, way well he's so guilty you almost wonder if there's that element of like i want to be caught well, no, right, there's a little, you almost get an edge of that. I don't know. Did y'all sense that? So I, well, I want you to know this. This is like one of the first instances of Fred leaving, not because he got found out. It was because he just didn't have his way. He didn't have to leave. He had something That's good. That's what I'm saying. It's like, it's just, he's so up his own okay. ass. Wrap, like for lack of wrapped a up around himself. Yep. I agree. Uh, so he headed westward as Dr. Robert Lydon French still. And, had a very short time over at uh, the Pious Society of St. Mark, but eventually ended up at St. Martin's Abbey in Olympia, Washington. And this is one of Fred's times when I'm surprised he didn't leave sooner than he did because very early on, he had a moment of looking ridiculous, probably one of his most embarrassing. And him showing up as a doctor, uh, one of the brothers asked him, uh, Doctor, it's good to have you here, but uh, just curious, why are you wearing barber's jackets? So Fred, trying to look the part, decided to go to a store and find some what he thought was uh, doctor's jackets, and it turns out they were barber's jackets. And how I can, embarrassing! No, yeah, it's really bad. Like that, I think that that may have been like one of his worst moments with that, um, just to show up as a doctor and dressed as a barber. <laughs> this is when he decided to at least make up for it by uh, Dr. Robert and French diving into all three aspects of the Benedictines because he was going to try to make this place in his own image. He decided to dive into the aspects of the spiritual, intellectual, and physical work sides of the Benedictine monks. And he accidentally included his real DePaul grades in his academic records. Which, which I didn't understand. He seemed smart enough to do that. Yeah, I don't know why he did that. But they started to um, question a little bit. So Dr. French's qualifications were even more put into question when he had his first serious incident <laughs> with a medical situation. Uh, a monk came into Dr. French's uh, room one day having a heart attack. Everybody was very confused when Dr. French started yep. saying, get Somebody someone who can help. Get someone who can help. Somebody call a doctor. Now, Fred learned that this would actually be quickly forgotten as long as he didn't mention it and didn't make a big deal out of it. Um, and I think that that has absolutely sped up on the Internet today. I think more of it has to do with the time period back then where people were more more concerned with being polite than anything else. It was because it was a different time back then. America, uh, Americans were more concerned with being perceived as polite than being nice. So I have a quote from Fred where pretty much one of his ideas about this is he says, never be right. But yeah, Fred always said like never win an argument because that's when you get a target on your back and people would much rather... Um, 
be seen as friendly than be seen as correct. Yeah, at least this is the American sentiment well, at the so time. You're not going to harbor a grudge. If you're like, I was correct, you're not, you don't remember, no one sits in the shower replaying the argument they were correct in. Yes, exactly. <laughs> well, no. <laughs> Ryan does. Ryan's just like, I was fucking awesome. <laughs> if I did it again, I would change literally nothing. Nobody. I would apologize to absolutely fucking no one. <laughs> nobody, nobody does the uh, replay for an argument where the other person buckled immediately on a point. Exactly. There, I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself with this because it doesn't pertain to this situation with him. Charge forth. But it, it is coming up, but it is also applicable. I nailed that word. <laughs> I just got to say, I nailed that one. I was waiting to stutter through it when I was thinking about it. Anywho, he there was instances where he would be put in a situation where he didn't know what was going on. So he would give a diagnosis knowing it wasn't correct. Mostly because he didn't know dick about shit. But he would then have a counterpart say something and he would go, okay, well, tell me what you think it is. And he would basically basically go with what they say, and it accomplished two things. It was normally the right answer because they were learned doctors. And it also built up rapport. And it them. built up rapport, and it made him feel like that he listened to them and took their advice. Also, Frank yeah. Gavin Neal Jr., I concur, I concur. Now, yes. now, the other thing I will say about his whole thing of never, uh, never win an argument, he didn't mean that completely. Because there's also folks law that he used a lot. When he's attacked, that's when he's winning an argument. And he knows that they will switch into never win an argument. Most of the people when he attacks them, he knows that buys them just enough time, gives them pause when they know they have the proof that he's a fake. But he's being so convicted about it that they don't really want to like... It's one thing to question a fact. It's another thing to question somebody's integrity. Yes. And he uses that to his advantage when he needs to. Yes. So... Rumpf, I say good sir. Mm. (laughs) Indeed. I challenge thee. Indubitably. Like, it really does sound like he's just about to whip out a dueling glove every time he's confronted. Applicable. <laughs> Eventually, uh, Dr. Robert Linden French, after the whole incident got brushed under the rug, thought it would be best to commandeer a schoolroom to start the St. Martin Psychological Center. He just kind of started it himself. But there's reasoning to it. Number one, there wasn't a St. Saint- Martin Psychological Center in the first place. And... Fred developed two beliefs in his time as an imposter. First, in any organization, there is always a lot of loose, unused power lying about which can be picked up without alienating anyone. Second, if you want power and you want to expand, never encroach on anyone else's domain. Open new ones. So, pretty much... It's so smart. It's so true. Like, oh no, I'm not taking anybody's position. I'm just going to fight for this position that I now have that will give me some sort of sense of power. It's a... That's a pretty interesting way to look at things, honestly. Like, make your own department. <laughs> it's true. Um, there's, I was going to say there's an episode of The Office, but that's also true and relevant. But for me, the quickest way to get on some to get in the line of fire with somebody is for somebody to feel like they're you're treading on their territory. Well, you're that's, a threat. Exactly, and, and you're going to make enemies that way, which he's what he's not trying to do. This is somebody who wants to be beloved by all. Clearly, that is at the well, the heart of his focus. Well, so like, I don't want to get into like our kind of wrap up meta commentary too much. But like, that's what keeps plaguing him throughout this is that to be good at what he does, he needs to keep a low profile. But his ego constantly doesn't allow him to it with yeah. this like foundational principle. Like, yeah, like you're saying, he doesn't jump in as the hero doctor and offer treatment. He sets back, 
lets them do it, right? His ego's not tied up in that. But if somebody came up to him, and I, I'm just theorizing, if they said, you're a shit doctor. Oh, he'd, he'd lose he his He would mind. probably be like, I'm an incredible doctor, right? And would just go nuts. And so, I don't know. It's he's, he's this this personality flaw of his, this need to be recognized, this understanding of his own intellect and how that manifests is so at odds with how he can protect himself as a con artist. And his, <laughs> and his like his daily driver and his actual output are just totally conflicting. Dude, I didn't just thought about this. If we want to get into some sort of conventions or something, especially like, you know, say we want to go like, I don't know, CPAC, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Pick I, one. I can go as Ryan, uh, senior editor of Rumor Flies LLC. Love it. There we go. That, that Done. Did y'all take the senior editor uh, role? No. I guess fucking. I didn't know it was on the table. Boom. Lead producer. Okay. I'll be junior analyst. Because it leaves us. It leaves us. And see, the thing is, it implies there are a bunch of senior analysts. Lead producer means we have a bunch of producers. And what was what editor? Oh, senior editor. Senior editor. So like, you've clearly got an army of people handling DIT and. All your, uh, all of our recording online, our settings, our updating the wiki to make sure we have protocol. We're a very sophisticated operation. So let me ask you this: Then, what is the implication that this podcast is sponsored by Room of Flies? <laughs> we have a sponsorship. <laughs> <laughs> you know what, Josh? I think it's time that we uh, we upgrade you to lead correspondent. <laughs> I'm in the field, director of correspondence. There we go. <laughs> All right, so moving on. For a bit, he actually gets in pretty good at St. Martin's. He's got his own uh, psychological center. Um, He eventually becomes beloved in the community, so much so that he got in good with the sheriff. And (laughs) the sheriff actually uh, made him an honorary deputy. Yeah, he deputized him. Yeah, he he was a deputy sheriff. He was allowed to carry a gun at that point and carry a a bubblegum machine on the top of his car. They offered him a service revolver. He's like, don't worry, I have two. (laughs) (laughs) Well, at this point, he was still carrying the Smith & Wesson 38 Special on him. I have three. (laughs) What's crazy to me is that he's a teacher, right? Mm -hmm. So he's a teacher and a campus cop. Yeah, that's just that is so weird. He to was me. ahead of the times. Uh, he also became a, a deputy, uh, an honorary fire department um, member with privileges. I don't know what with privileges for the fire department means. You get to. Did just... Y'all know Steve Buscemi was a volunteer fire. Oh my fucking god! god. <laughs> Thank you, Reddit. Every two weeks. I mean, look, I'll say this: it sounds like Frank was a fucking Texan before Texans were Texans. There you go. And then also, he became a notary public. Which probably First, really forging must have been yeah, yeah must have been so useful yeah every stamp imaginable. The thing is, there was one person at St. Martin's that was a little bit uh, suspicious of him, and they started to look into this uh, Dr. Robert Linton French when they went out east. Oh no! Um, but it didn't matter because by the time that that guy had gotten back, not only was Fred like untouchable, the only thing that was able to stop him was a visit by the FBI. They got him. Whoopsies. They found Dr. Robert Linton French was actually a man known as, well, Fred DeMara. And he was charged with desertion. And this actually carried a potential death penalty on it. And they took away his, his favorite big green steamer trunk. He had lost part of his identity. R.I.P. in pieces. He eventually uh, ended up in a, uh, I guess, not an MP camp or anything like that. but Military prison, whatever you call that. And he was in... Army jail. 
Yeah, he was an army. G- he was sent to six. He was sentenced to six years in army jail, and um, he actually got out after eighteen months on good behavior. However, still took advantage when he was there. When somebody asked him what he did, he said he was a newspaperman. So they actually let him write for the newspaper for the camp, and he wrote a small puff piece called like Tars and Bars. Listeners, if anybody can find a copy of Tars and Bars, I will actually pay you for it. Like, just please, I need to find this. That's the name of my first uh, rap album. Yeah. <laughs> So after he was released after 18 months. Well, uh, actually, I, I do have a genuine question, not, not bullshittery. Does the Navy still think he's dead at this point? I, I could never figure that out. No, they, they knew he was. Alive. They just they lumped it all into one charge. Yep. Okay, that's what I thought. I may have committed some light <laughs> treason. <laughs> so he had to obviously give up the Dr. Robert Linton French moniker. So he became a Dr. Cecil Boyce Haman and he applied to law school. And at this time, he also tried to get married. And the thing is, is that Fred did actually have some success going on a lot of dates. He spent a lot of his time and money on going on dates. And it seemed to, like, women liked him and he liked women, but it never seemed to work out for some reason, just for small bits. And this is where Fred gets kind of introspective to a certain degree, or maybe he's, like, fifth grade, uh, like, you know, poetry. He said that he didn't think it worked out with any women because he felt that love was real, but he was fake. So... He didn't feel like he could ever be just Fred to these women. That's some like meta analysis. See, bullshit. again, I was talking about this earlier, right? This like, I don't know. I'm, I'm like way pop, like armchair, way speculating, like, like way out on a limb here. Right. Everything. But this goes back I mean, to unless Fred's earlier. in the room with us. We can't actually like, fair you enough. Know. But it was like I was saying earlier, right? This almost like what you know, this part of him almost wants to be caught. And so you think that like, as he's like dating and stuff, it's like, Oh, they're a good person. I'm a bad person, right? This like moral hangover he's having yes. from like his upbringing. And I'm like doing super off the cuff pop oh, no. psychology here. But like, I think there's clearly some through lines. I keep saying it's not clear. I'm speculating. I think, <laughs> I think Fred there seems to be through lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think Fred bounced back and forth between being Baptist and Episcopalian, but he has the most like traditionally Catholic personality you can imagine. Guilt, 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 guilt. Yeah. I, I elaborate on that a little bit more soon, but this Cecil Boyce Hammond made it over to, uh, to Maine at an Abbey in 1950 and eventually became brother John Payne, which almost sounds like an action hero to a degree. Or he signed the constitution. Oh wait. Yeah. That happened that's got, too. that's got some serious founding father energy. Yeah. Uh, there he attempted to expand the institution into a four year college and he, pretty much got there Mm -hmm. he became like the go-to guy he became the fixer pretty much for this abbey um one example is uh when construction engineers and surveyors showed up to put a highway through the campus brother john made a few calls to higher-ups in portland maine saying he was calling on behalf of the bishop which who's gonna challenge him on that one um and eventually when engineers showed up again he made sure they saw the pistol hanging out of his cassock and threatened to shoot them if they didn't leave. He also asked who they thought the court would believe. Either the engineers or the poor brother John Payne. So, once again, he is on the rap for death threats. They left. They actually didn't build the highway through it. And he also managed to help a Canadian brother of his, uh, not like literal brother, but like a brother of the cloth, who had a medical background named Dr. Joseph Sear. And he helped them uh, get... Uh, credentials to practice in the United States. Uh, and this was actually impressive because for a while, like he just straight up took his credentials 
and did not use them. He actually did get him credentialed in the United States. We're using his connections. So he did have some good faith. So little addendum. I have edited this in a certain way, but it turns out that this is a part where me and Josh's research have come at odds with each other. According to the great imposter, Cecil Boyce Hammond uh, helped Dr. John Sear get credentialed to practice uh, medicine in the United States, but Josh's research says he didn't. So once again, who knows? Um, we'll figure it out. I mean, the rumor flies lead correspondent knows, but you know. Okay, well, this is the senior editor, so we'll see how much you have to say. <laughs> okay, so he's got final trouble in paradise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So eventually, Dr. Boyce Hammond's hard work did pay off, and Lamineus College would be founded. And then he got the biggest insult possible to Fred. This was amazing. He thought that due to him being like the, the seed of the idea, the person that wanted to start up this place. He knew he would be a shoo-in as like a headmaster, at the very least a lead department head. Well, he was really sad when they put up posters uh, announcing the new staff of Lamineus College because Dr. Boyce Tommen would end up being a biology teacher. Mm -hmm. And in usual Fred fashion, he packed up, then stole some wine from the sacristy. And then he also took, a, of course, some official stationery on the way out. And then... After he got out, he fell into a drinking bench and ended up in a YMCA room. And I mean, that's happened. Here, he thought he had no way out. Like, he thought that he had exhausted all of like his resources. Like, he couldn't find the exit? Yeah. Or? Well, probably that. Um, aside from, okay, that almost got really dark right there. <laughs> um, he pretty I heard much, it's fun to be there. He was about to, uh, according to his words in The Great Imposter, he was about to give up the game and just lose it pretty much. Mm-hmm. And then conveniently out of the suitcase fell some papers that he forgot to return to the very pious brother, Joe St. Cyr. <laughs> it was all of his credentials that, Gret that Fred kept. Now, I do want to bring up a couple of things real quick. One, when I was doing this research, I kept waiting for the moment when they were announcing the, the faculty for the college and they'd be like, and our new projectionist. Not just yet. like what they were going to do with his dad. I just thought that'd be that funny. It would have been fucking greatest thing ever. Yeah, we're going to have a little theater and everything. <laughs> you would be the projectionist? Um, it is kind of weird how it did reflect like his dad's situation. Yes, I, I thought there were some interesting parallels between that. And the other thing that I found really interesting was that, and I just want to point this out, he was a biologist, you know, for a school, which he's not qualified for. So he has to lesson plan and read a chapter ahead like he normally did just to, you know, a week before everybody else and then teach it to him, which is impressive. But then in his off time at night, he was going to law school. Like I said, this guy is the ultimate fake it till you make it type of person. But like, he was he, he was doing yeah, very yeah. well in law school. Yeah, he was on not, top of faking being a biology professor. Once he got there, he performed well. He just didn't like all the steps that it took to get there. Oh, and just to be clear, too, and this is something, I mean, maybe I picked up on this. Maybe you read it differently. I didn't read this as I'm going to law school to make the world a better place. It's a, I know where this path leads and I want to get myself out of prison. Um, I think that there might be some merit to that, or at least knowing how to get himself out of a It pinch. was more of like how he was in the army where he's learning the system to manipulate it. Yeah. That's how I took it. I don't know if you... Came across it came across that way. It's to you. completely possible. Also, this is the 60s where like biology and law are real things. This isn't like 
1820 where it's like i'm a doctor i have a sharp blade yeah right? <laughs> you have some cocaine yes seriously was it the old you have ghosts in your blood you should well, be okay about it. <laughs> we'll see how far that statement lasts greg that's fair <laughs> but it is like there is something to be said about like how we're saying all this fake identity stuff in 2022 that's the way he did things doesn't really work right like there are some things we also i think sometimes prescribe too much confidence to institutions in the sense of like we think oh you could never just walk into university and pretend to be a professor i don't know man they got thousands of faculty and you look like you belong i mean they, what was gonna stop you and say i've never seen you before let me make sure you're actually a professor that's the big that can thing be really insulting that's the big thing about fred though <laughs> yes he really thought that if one was qualified for the job he should have it like regardless of like if you can perform the work you should be able to do the work um the thing is is like he said that he hated academia so much because they didn't hire people they hired degrees on paper that's it which isn't wrong no like i understand the logic behind that like i do um i actually like just having worked in both like chemistry and some engineering most of the time grad students are the most incompetent people like not like phds or anything like that the ones that first get started and they only do stuff on paper for the most part, have the lab conditions, don't have to work with a certain type of like crunch or having to figure out how it works with like industrial stuff. Like the ones that like are very heavily connected. This isn't always situation, but I've seen a lot of them where they're sheltered in academia and don't get to do the actual like real work part of it. Yeah, yeah. sure. Unless you're doing research, obviously. Um, it's different. But like I would actually. Ch- against college, period. Oh, yeah. Why wouldn't we be? I honestly think that, like, when it comes to... Up in their ivory towers, if I get their better than... Sorry. If I've <laughs> seen, like, somebody that has done, like, ten, five to ten years of analytical work in a lab or something like that, working with the machines one-on-one, as opposed to somebody who just graduated as a master's in analytical chemistry, I might... It's a 50-50 split for me at this point, because, like, I know the the problems that that person that's worked in a different lab before has gone through and has had to work out and has learned through picking it up from practice you know it's mm-hmm. just yeah i mean that's why people do uh residences right right i mean and one of the things though that it kind of made me think about greg too and i'm just not going to take an opportunity to fire this missile <laughs> is we talk about you know being able to walk in and just being like i'm a teacher and no one's you know it's rude as shit to be like mm, no you're not but i mean literally you could walk in one day and just say, hey, I'm a founder of this car company. And people say, no, you're not. And you're like, okay, I'll just sue all of you to oblivion. And next thing you know, you own SpaceX and Tesla. You're just messing with <laughs> But yeah, you're basically just like calling people's bluff on like how quickly can they identify you. And Absolutely. Like that's essentially what it's like. You're basically counting on social mores protecting you. Well, there's also like an uncanny valley of lies, I think. Where mm. there's somewhere you tell a little white lie. You're just like, is that true? But then there's somewhere you can tell something with such a gambit. Like there's a lie where people are just like bullshit and then they're going to ask you something. But if you go so magnanimously where people are just like, there's no way this person could get away lying about it. So it has to be true. Mm -hmm. Some people will just take it. Like you're going to make that big of a statement. I'm not going to ask you because the way you presented it and also the way like it would just be rude for me to do it. Yeah. I, no, what you need to say somebody, no, you don't have a law degree. Well, I, I do think, well. <laughs> like you just can't, like, you can't just, like, well, just say that to a random person. I don't know. That's one of those things where it's like, you know, I don't feel well. It's like, hmm, 
Maybe you got food poisoning. You'd be like, no, I don't. Well, one of us is a doctor. You're a fucking dentist. <laughs> but anyway. Anytime I've ever been in a law office. Shots which, fired at the dentist <laughs> of the world. I was luckily, <laughs> luckily, it isn't that often. But the only times I've been to a law office, I didn't ask for their degree. I just saw something on the back wall. And I saw they had like, you know, um, you know, Absolutely. law firm on their building. So, well, I, I was going to say, like, I you could definitely tell, though, that this shit would not fly these days. Like from from a from a meta commentary social standpoint, though, I present it in this way, though, and I know I, I didn't want to go down this road right now, but whatever. I don't think that the the threshold of people and like we were talking earlier, Americans want to be polite instead of being right. I think I think we've done a fucking 180 on that. I think we are in a totally oh, different space. Now. Yeah, absolutely. I think it is. They are more concerned with being right. Than being polite. At we all. we can't incorporate modern day into this much. Uh, last note before we uh, like uh, continue on, I think I got it. This is the way to do it. Like I might be it, listeners. If you're a lawyer, uh, let me know if I'm completely wrong on this. Um, but I feel like that somebody that isn't a lawyer could make a pretty good job saying you're a law firm that specializes in libel, and pretty much you stop at um, <laughs> you stop at just saying I will write a cease and desist letter for you. On official, on my official station. And you go, Ooh, I don't like this case. I'm, I'm going to refer you to a colleague. Anytime they try to take it further than that, <laughs> <laughs> you just, just kick it referrals all day. Yeah, pretty much. Just get the cease and desist money. That's it. And you know what? If, if you ever get to a point where you don't know if you sound official enough, just add a couple more fake last names. The law offices of, of you know, Smith and West and, and Jones and Timothy. The law office of Smith and Weston. That sounds like a threat. <laughs> I was going to say. <laughs> Okay, so um, back to Fred finding a pile of Dr. Joseph Sears' Canadian credentials. Fred realized he couldn't really use them in the United States. So, boys, we're about to move into my favorite chapter of Fred DeMar's life. I agree. When he decided he would join the Canadian Navy. Yes. Thank you for listening to part one of this two-part series. Part two will be releasing next week. Bye.